Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is historian and author Barry Goff. Barry's book, Possessing Mears Island, A Historian's Journey into the Past of Clockwood Sound, was a finalist for the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. In our conversation, Barry and I talk about the title and how the word possession fits into the story of Mears Island, and we talk about the necessity for good storytelling in historical writing. Barry will introduce himself and talk a bit about his background before reading from the book. I'm uh, Barry Goff. I'm an octogenarian. <laughs> I live in Victoria, British Columbia, in my childhood home, which has been in my family's possession since 1931. I uh, uh, trained uh, as a historian at King's College University of London and the Institute of Commonwealth Studies under a prominent uh, naval and maritime historians by the name of Gerald Graham. Uh, my first academic assignment was at Western Washington University, where I helped found the Canadian Studies and Cross-Border Institute. I took up uh, a position at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University in 1972 to escape the problems of Vietnam uh, uh, subcultures in the United States uh, universities, and was a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University from 1972 through to 2004, when I retired as a professor emeritus and research university pr professor. I took up the opportunity of having uh, and giving visiting lectureships at Otago, Duke University, Cambridge University, London University, University of Natal in South Africa, National University of, of Australia in Canberra, and in, at, in Singapore University and also in Hong Kong. Uh, I believed as a, a student of the British Empire Commonwealth that it was up to me to learn as much as I could about the Empire Commonwealth as was and to acquaint myself with native uh, practices and intercultural arrangements in other parts of the British Empire because British Columbia is not alone in its imperial experiences, although we may well be the best example of the surviving nature of that. I, I believe uh, very firmly that Canada is an empire. It's a legatee of the British Empire, and it deals with minorities and ethnicities and founding peoples in a way that is unique in the world. And we're a model for the nation or the world, but we we were, we failed to understand that because we're so preoccupied with our domesticity of politics. So I'll leave it at that, Megan. But I, I would say that I retired to Victoria in 2004. Uh, I went into overdrive in terms of writing, uh, my book on Peter Pond has appeared since this. My book on, on Mears Island, obviously. A book on Winston Churchill and Jackie Fisher at the Admiralty. And a couple of other titles, including Wanda Fuqua's Strait Voyages in the Waterway of, of Forgotten Dreams. I, I have learned uh, to position my work uh, in such a way that the public generally will be interested in it. I'm uh, alarmed that so many academics write to each other. I, I believe that history is a, an outward passion. I learned this from Margaret Ormsby, my professor in Canadian history at the University of British Columbia, that we can write for ourselves, but we can also write for the 
the wider world. What good is a book on Mears Island if it's it's put in the drawer and forgotten and referred to maybe 10 years later by some inquiring PhD student? The, the word has to get out to the wider world about our waterways, our mountains, our seas, uh, our ethnicities, our founding peoples, and, and so forth. And it was this with uh, Wanda Fuqua Strait, uh, and it, it's this way with Possessing Mears Island. The cover of the book is a microcosm of what's inside it. The title is Possessing Mears Island, and by possessing, I mean, and others have meant, how did they see this particular place, uh, an important island of geography that's situated on the west coast of Vancouver Island? It's in a cul-de-sac of the west coast, uh, adjacent to Tofino, not far from Yulkulit, uh, not far from Port Alberni, but you'd have to get there by boat. The, the uh, front page illustration is uh, uh, an American ship by the name of the Columbia, Captain Robert Gray, who came to Clackwatt Sound, which is the waterway there. And you will see in the uh, foreground the, the native canoes that are approaching the ship. And you can see Wiccaninish, the famous Clackwatt chief, or Tlaquiet, chief uh, standing up and beckoning to the American traders to come into the harbor and to begin the, the trade in the sea otter pelt. On the back uh, cover is uh, an illustration that derives from a uh, painting that's in uh, the Massachusetts Historical Society called Winter Quarters, and it shows a vessel on the stocks, that's the adventure, and uh, it's about to be launched into the waters of uh, Mears Island and known as uh, Lemons Inlet. And in the background is the Columbia. And in the foreground are the assessors who are uh, looking at the progress of the ship, which is soon to be uh, launched. This is in April of 1822. Now, uh, that's an important segue, I think, to some readings or two extracts that I want to use uh, from my book. The Northwest Coast native culture that flourished into the modern era when travelers, agents, and missionaries arrived to take note of its features for the first time had been stimulated by the early phases of its people's contact with European mariners and traders. This was a time of vigorous trade and of cultural changes, including the development and elaboration of the potlatch. The Northwest Coast nations were fishing peoples, unagrarian in their ways of existence. They lived communally on their jungle frigid beaches with their backs to the mountains, facing out into the channels, sounds, and passages that led to Vancouver Island's outer coast, its coastal routes, and the broad Pacific. Sea lions, sea otter, whales, porpoise, seals, and river otter were creatures of the sea, and bear and the wolf of the land. Shellfish were in profusion. The saw and the axe had replaced bone and stone tools, and the monarchs of the forest, the great Douglas fir and cedar, the carver's favorite, now lay at the mercy of the industrial age and the rapacious forest industries. But still the posts and supporting timbers held the stories of the village and allied kin. The carvings, Write Bill, writes Bill Reed, told the people of the completeness of their culture, the continuing lineages of the great families, 
their closeness to the magic world of myth and, re- and legend. Reed goes even farther in his elegant description out of the silence. Perhaps they told more, a story of little people, few and scattered numbers, in a huge dark world of enormous forests and absurdly large trees, and stormy coasts and wild waters beyond, where brief cool summers gave way forever to long black winters and families round their fires, no matter how long their lineages needed much assistance of their greatness and assurance of their greatness. We leave the discussion of these things now, marveling at their complexity, yet understanding that artistic creation and linguistic uniqueness gave identity, provided unity, accorded pride, and rendered reassurance. I've not attempted a social history of the New Chalmers peoples over two centuries. This is a book about property and possession. Here again, travel and voyage accounts allow us to reconstruct local conditions in the absence of archival sources. Naturally, the writer's cultural references, understandings, and biases inform the text they produce about new people, practices, and places. How could it be otherwise? For me, only yesterday the world was young. For First Nations, this is far from the case. There's little written testimony on the First Nations side, and I have combed through native accounts of New Chalmers ethnography looking for hard evidence. Time and again, I've wished for more native historical evidence, but it is not there in the documents which, which I have relied on. Nothing more clearly distinguishes the original inhabitants from, from those who came to live among them in the modern period than the difference in recorded history. First Nations did not write down their stories or histories. Furthermore, they had concepts of history that differed radically from professional historical epistemology and practice. I accept this limitation, and I ask readers to understand the matter. Given what presents itself in the written record, there's no shortage of documentation upon which to build up a history of Mears Island and the Mears Island case. In reference to that, this work began in 1984 at the request of the New Chalmers Tribal Council to write a documentary history of Mears Island and Clackwatt Sound. Now we advance to the uh, larger question of the war for the woods and come to chapter 8, Dispossessions and Dispositions. The original human inhabitants of Clackwatt Sound, like those of Minutka, formed a culture dominated by two concepts, hereditary rank and kinship, Rank was based on possession of rights to inherited property of the land and the sea and ability to exercise these rights. Ownership of non-tangible items, names, legends, dances, histories, was also a matter of bright pride and possession. Much may have changed over the years since John Mears's visit in 1788, but the legacies of culture cannot be swept away. And so it was that when the linguist Barbara Effort came to interview the Hesquiet for an oral history project of the Provincial Archives of British Columbia in the 1970s, she found that information supplied to her was dominated by matters relating to possession or possessory rights that had been encroached upon or trespassed 
by non-natives, governments, and corporations. Much attention was given over within the culture to property rights both on land and in the water, but there was also a focus on property rights in their language and dialects. She learned of native resentment. She found that not long before, a cultural committee had been established to protect Hesquiat culture and how it was to be interpreted by outsiders. The culture has not died out, she wrote, despite severe uh, provocation from white institutions, but has changed and adapted to the new conditions introduced by the Europeans. Here, then, is the basis of the persistent claims of rights and privileges to the forest and to the sea that emerged in dramatic fashion and gained prominent public attention in 1984 when Moses Martin declared Mears Island a garden. It was the New Chalneth version of They Shall Not Pass. Indigenous nations of Clackwat Sound have been actually protesting for years, but in 1984 their case became a matter of intense interest, gaining public attention at last, and with it the attention of the media. Logging companies, Macmillan Bloedel, had made clear its intention to clear out sections of Mears Island, as was the company's legal right under rules of forest management regulated by the province of British Columbia, and the Philoquiate were determined to prevent this happening. On April 21, 1984, at the Mears Island Easter Festival in Tofino, Wiccaninish School Gymnasium, 600 people there, including local residents, musicians, and members of the media, gathered for an urgent meeting arranged by the Friends of Clackwat Sound. Vancouver Island artist Godfrey Stevens had carved weeping woman cedar for the event, and the carving became an enduring symbol for conservation. An air of seriousness filled the room. Momentous announcements were about to be made. And at this meeting, Moses Martin, chief counselor of the Philoquiate, and already introduced as the leading voice championing the Mears Island case for recognition of Aboriginal title and rights, declared Mears Island a tribal park. Perhaps a little unusually in the circumstances, this tribal park was the term he used to declare Philoquiate territorial rights on Mears Island. The formal declaration, dated that same April 21st, 1984, had been signed by two hereditary chiefs, George Frank and Alec Frank Sr., and carried the name of the Clackwood Band Council. We would permit access to the island for recreational purposes, says that declaration. It also included the demand that outsiders recognize our land claims and that there be no resources removed from uh, Mears Island, excluding watershed, by which was meant that the water supply for Tofino would not be upset. The Western Canada Wilderness Committee, headquartered in Vancouver, circulated the declaration widely, accompanying it with a request for donations to the committee tax deductible. In consequence, wider audience were now being informed of the process, and special interest groups defending landscapes, bird life, natural wildlife, watersheds, hunting rights, and much more, came forward in support. The partnership of the Friends of Clackwat Sound and the Thloquiet now took action on Mears Island. They laid out a trail from Hillboom Bay 
on the far side of Mount Colnett, as seen from Tofino, to the forest giant, one of the oldest and biggest trees, measuring a nearly unimaginable 19 meters in diameters. Others took initiatives of a different sort. Joe and Carl Martin revived tradition and started carving canoes. A nastier turn of events came when eco-warious militants took independent and unauthorized action. They began driving big metal spikes into trees on Mears Island, an act of protest with results sure to impede loggers, damage equipment, destroy chainsaws, and injure operators. Tensions continued to rise. On September 11th of that year, the Thlokuyet and Ahausik, backed by other representatives of the New Chalmers Tribal Council, staged a protest at the legislative building in Victoria. Sentiment against the company rose to fever pitch. Here was a case of traditional native rights and claims to resources advanced against the claims of a big corporation. Because the province held the legal and administrative machinery to grant tree-cutting licenses, and this was all above board, so to speak, the government of British Columbia also became a target of the Indigenous nations. And because the, the government of Canada, which had legislative powers over Indian affairs, owned property on Mears Island in the form of two Indian reserves, it too was targeted by the Indigenous peoples as a future defendant in a legal case the New Chalmers Tribal Council intended to launch. The only thing missing was an event that would galvanize native forces and bring in allies to the cause. Exactly a month after the Save Mirrors protest in Vancouver, in November 21st, the loggers with their chainsaws plus Mac Blow officials approached the Heelboom Bay in a company workboat, the Kennedy Queen. A flotilla of small boats greeted them, an unarmed native force of resistance. A violent encounter was expected, and the RCMP were there in what was regarded as sufficient force, but there was no armed resistance, no worry or intention of violence on the native side, only a declaration of positions based on rights proclaimed in the Declaration of the Tribal Park. The Ahauset and Thlokiet had no quarrel with the loggers, but they did want to preserve the forests, Moses Martin told the loggers. This was his people's garden, and they were not to cut trees. The result of this encounter was a decision by Mac Blow not to proceed with forceful occupation. And from that, of course, came the, the famous injunction to prohibit the uh, cutting of trees on, on Mears Island, a rollover injunction which continues to this day. I read from the last paragraph of the book. Mears Island stands under its two mountain landmarks, its dark forests coming down to salt water and the pathways to wider seas. Its valleys are largely undefiled by industrial activity. Here and there stand the giants of the forest, and somehow they have resisted what seemed almost inevitable a generation ago. Thanks, Barry. I hope that we could start by uh, talking a little bit more about the title. I know you you uh, briefly mentioned this in in describing the cover of the book, but that word possession is so interesting. And, and I wondered how you landed on that and how it came up as you were researching and writing the book. 
a uh, dear friend of mine and late colleague by the name of Greg Denning of Melbourne University wrote a book or, or wrote a long extended essay called Possessing Tahiti. And in this, he uh, described how Tahiti was a, a place of indigenous occupation, how geographers came there and mapped it, how James Cook came there, how Bly and the mutineers used Tahiti uh, as a sexual paradise and then as a place to refit to when they went to Pitcairn Island, how astronomy uh, was important in the possessing of, of uh, Tahiti. That is to say, in, eight, in 1768, James Cook was sent there to observe the transit of Venus, a famous uh, ast astronomical passage that occurs only occasionally. So science and uh, ethnography and voyaging all came together in Greg Denning's book. Now, another motif that he developed, which many of us in British Columbia have used, is that the beach... This was another Greg Denning thing. The beach is, uh, is seen as an intermediary between uh, land-based cultures and seaborne cultures, even though, for our case, we might say that, that Wiccaninish or Maquina were, all, were not only land-based, but they were sea-based. They were, they were amphibian, right? <laughs> um, but the beach is the passageway of goods and services, and across the beach comes missionaries, come traders, administrators, medical people, and so forth, and back from it goes, uh, coming from across the beach from the indigenous side are other things, including um, traditional occupancy. So that was the inspiration for the title, but I began to use this in connection with the Mears Island case because uh, in terms of the, the language or the lingo, the uh, Thalokwiat and Ahauzit call uh, Mears Island, uh, we steer by the mountains. That is to say, there are two prominent uh, mountains there. There's, there's Lone Cone and there's Mount Colnet. And the indigenous peoples sailing in their magnificent canoes offshore in, say, a whaling expedition would be able to see those prominent mountains, Lone Cone, and Mount Colnet in the distance, and they would say, ah, there's, if we line these up in a certain way or take an angle on that, we'll be able to find the approach um, into Clackwatt Sound. Remember in those days there were no lighthouses, no buoys, boys, no uh, navigational charts. It was all, it was all done in, in native, native ways. I could go on about that, but I won't. Now, um, when uh, the great John Walbran began his studies of place names on the B.C. coast, he learned that George Henry Richards of the Royal Navy in the 1860s, mid-1860s, had named a number of places after famous traders. And the famous trader in this case is John Mears. So John Mears has a name of possession um, given by the Imperial Foundation to that location. And, and that's what it is, is called today, and it's been accepted uh, by uh, indigenous peoples there, although they do have another name for it. Leaving, leaving that aside, um, and this is the grit and, and, and roughness of this book, which I had to learn so much about before I wrote the last third of it. This is the politics of timber licensing. I had no idea 
how the province held this in their back pocket, how they controlled the licenses. And this goes back to 1904. You can't get to the original records. records. They're all locked up. The, the, the shenanigans that went on in that time and place in the, the early years of rapine uh, in British Columbia's coast and in its forests and probably in salmon industry as well, is the time of this, this huge opening and grasping for, for control, which we're still uh, seeing the results of it today. But uh, these are the various possessions uh, that we can see, and there are others along it. But the last chap, the last process, and the last chapter is how the historian, in this case Barry Goff, how the historian draws these things together and possesses it as history. Now, I began with my reading in which I say that my history is differentiated from those of the indigenous peoples. They have their own accounts. There are a couple of written histories of the, the general area, an important one by Peter Webster. My possession is that I have been able to encapsulate it. And this, you know, for, our, for British Columbia and for the world, is the greatest of possessions, if I might put it, because I, I have become the interpreter um, the interlocutor between the past and the present. And the more and more I got into this book, the more and more I realized the value of the story I was telling. Not only that we'd won a case or put a stop to the clear-cut logging in the Mears Island case, but now the story is being told to the wider world, and anybody can now tell about or read about the case itself. And what happened in the run-up to the famous Clackwat Sound descent, and then all the way down to 2022 when we're dealing with something called Ferry Creek, which is another watershed. And there's a, there's a an additional one that's developing up in uh, the Port Alberni and uh, also uh, Port Renfrew area. These These things are perpetual. And all the time that we're going through this discussion about who owns what, the forest uh, industries backed by the British Columbia government with their licenses, all duly uh, honored and preserved and respected, are diminishing our old growth, new growth, and, and even in, the, in the, the recurring growth that occurs in those valleys. You know, those streams are being destroyed. The salmon uh, basis for recovery is diminishing. The wildlife that uses those valleys for refuge, the uh, bird life uh, sanctuaries that exist there, those are all, uh, those don't count uh, with those people who give out the timber licenses. And, and I have spoken to a number of people who used to work for the forestry um, department here. I won't name names, I can't, but, you know, I tell them of my passionate desire to save the forest and to tell the Mears Island story. And they sort of nod their heads in agreement and then they roll their eyes as if to say, you know, I'm, we, I'm sorry, I'm, I, can't, I can't comment on that. When I entered the ministry, I probably took an oath uh, uh, to, 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 you know, to back the crown and its interests in this regard. But I, I tell you, this is, this is a tragedy that I have seen on my watch because I was born in 1938 
I'm an octogenarian. I've I've spent um, so much time on Vancouver Island, and I remember going to Cathedral Grove or Macmillan, as it's now called, to look at those great giants of the forest, the hemlocks and the balsams and and the cedars. And every time I drive by, I'd always take my kids out of the car and say, "We're going to pay homage to the trees. We're going to walk in these trees and see what they're like." And thank goodness there's that little park that's left for others to see. But it's a tragedy that's occurred on my watch. So to some degree, I feel just a slight bit of redemption because I I think I've been able to tell the story. And I think years hence, people are going to say, gee, Barry told that story with, with passion and conviction because that makes for good history. And not only that, but it's a good remembrance of the, the fight that was put up by Indigenous people to preserve their own garden as uh, Moses Martin called it. Yeah. I'm having like a million thoughts coming into my head, but uh, trying to to stay a little bit focused here. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've been doing this job for, this is my fourth season doing the podcast and seeing these themes come up. I think there's, there's so many things that uh, those who write about the British Columbia, you know, feel compelled to write about. I'm thinking of Harley Rustad's uh, Big Lonely Doug touches on similar kind of things that you mention uh, in Possessing Mears Island, but in a different part of, of the community. But I wanted to um, ask you a little bit more about that role uh, of in, I think you called it interlocutor uh, and, and translator between past and present, because I think it's what makes books like yours so compelling to read is that they're not just a, a recreation of a period of time. It's kind of an understanding of how we got here. And and I think that's important. It's what makes history alive and not just a, a past that we look back on. And I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that role, but also the challenges uh, of that role, because I mean, you're covering so much and so little. It's such a rich book. Um, but deciding what goes in there to really make it resonate with the reader reading in 2022. Yes, uh, thank you for that question. It's, it's a big book. Um, it approaches 300 pages. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete... Um, uh, I, I was surprised that it went through that length. And then I came to the conclusion, of course, that I excluded many, many things from it. Um, the uh, people like to divide time into um, past, present, present, and and future. This is sort of how we uh, situate ourselves in regard to things that have come before us, going back millennia. Of course, in the case of the New Challenge Tribal Council and peoples, to ten thousand years ago. All right, but. My uh, look on it from the present, as I worked through this over a five-year period, was to look at the various pasts of this particular geographical area. Now, you could probably do the same thing for Powell River, or you could do it for Vancouver or New Westminster or Port Hardy. You can start from the present, uh, which is the current preoccupation. To give you an example, if we took Alert Bay for instance, as another possibility for historical study, we would be preoccupied with the St. Michael's School affair. All right. If we were to go back perhaps uh, 20 to 25 years ago, before that story uh, and account was made public, 
we would be back to the age in which my parents were able to take a, a, a CPR coastal uh, steamer and stop along the way and would meet Jim, Jimmy Seawood, the famous chief there, whose fishing vessel was on the $5 bill. I don't know whether you remember that, but he wrote his own life of that story. If we were to go back a century before that to the 1870s, we would discover that some American uh, Americans had arrived in Alert Bay and decided that this was a great place to set up a fishing cannery. All right. So can you can you understand from those three levels how um, a historian can can trace back these various levels of our history? So in the Mears Island case, I come right to the present. I go back through to the in-between time. Then I go back to the Spanish and British explorers. Then I go back to Wiccaninish. Then I go back to the indigenous landscape and the trade with China. And so then I, I've traced it through these five or six, let's, let's call them um, plateaus, perhaps, that's, or levels, layers. Layers would be best. And you know who is master of this, though he's, he's, uh, uh, he's unscientific in his activities mainly, but he gets the details right, is James Michener. Now, he's, he was um, he, he's disregarded by any serious historian because it doesn't seem to have the, the grip on it, but he's, he's layered his history up, upright from, from earliest times to, to the present. His, his work on Alaska is uh, uh, worth looking at uh, all the time. Pity he didn't get to British Columbia. But um, that, that is a way of approaching it. In the, the academic world, we tend to posit over a historical question, and we say, here are the possible interpretations of the past. Here is what we want to do in the future. Uh, as a as a theoretical question, and this is my point of argument, and then we go through the documentation, selecting the 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 articles or the documents or the interviews or whatever that support our case. We're engaged in the process of filtering, and then at the end of the day, we write it all up. And uh, at the end of the day, also we come to specific conclusions about the past. And then we articulate it to the present because um, this is the this is the process of education and communication. You go through the process of your documentation with an idea in advance, and we hope it's a sustain, sustainable idea that can be proved. And that's what a thesis is, which is a thing stated, right? So at the end of the day, you've got your you've got your conclusion. So this is uh, uh, this is a. Uh, uh, a method which was developed in Greek and Roman times, and it stood us in good stead. So this is what the historian tries to do, to work through time and space and work through things that can become uh, part of a major narrative or account that will bring us to an understanding. Now, I didn't have that privilege in the Mears Island case because I had to take into account all sorts of information, not to prove a point, but to describe the various levels or layers of Mears Island history. So I've got the Spanish in there, and I've got the Americans in there, big time, and the Brits of various kinds, the traders on the one hand, the naval officers, the hydrographers on the other, the Hudson Bay Company records uh, recordings, and, and, and then, of course, into the timber license licensing. But before I leave this subject, 
the most important thing in historical narrative is authenticity. Not dreaming up anything. You can't violate your documentation. You can't dream it up. You can't fudge it. Nor can you use other people's writing uh, in a form of plagiarism. I mean, these are two of the essential things. But um, authenticity is really important because if you're authentic in what you write and it's properly based in your documentation and in other people's interpretation of it, this, then this means that, that it, it will stand the test of time. I, I was once described as uh, being a good example of the authenticity of a historian, and I've, I've kept that in mind because people want to know um, the authentic details of, of the story. The other thing, not so easy to do, is to articulate it in a, in a readable way that people want to turn the page. And part of the success of this is the compelling nature of the data I'm using and articulating. But the other thing is that people want to know about this amazing place that has stood all these attacks of time, critical attempts to take over that, that forest. So the narrative, the strength of the narrative and the good writing is key. It's hard work. It's hard work. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I didn't want to say it was, I, when I, I said it was a, a short, I, it felt like there could have been, I think with most historical books, I find like, I'm always surprised that they're not longer because they're just <laughs> so, yeah. they cover so much time and so many characters. And, and I, I mean, I always love to see how people um, footnote their, I mean, the the research is right there. And so it's, it's remarkable, I guess, that it wasn't, to me, it wasn't longer because it was so, so rich. And yet you could really see that you'd uh, explored so many nooks and crannies, but um and this is going to tie into my next question, but you you were trying to tell a story, which is important in these books. And and uh, a couple of years ago, I talked to Wendy Wickwire, who wrote um, about James Tate, which was her book was a, a finalist for the Roger Cade Brown Prize as well. And and she commented on a similar thing that you did about how as academics, um, it's academics have for too long written for other academics and that it's important that books like yours and hers uh, get out to a wider reader. And and much of this is is writing a good story. It's not just presenting the research and the findings, it's making it readable. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how, how your storytelling has grown as you've done your books and, and your approach to storytelling as you put these, these books that you've done together. That's right. Uh, and I'm a great admirer of Wendy's work, and it's a wonderful book, uh, a model book. I uh, uh, my first book was on the Royal Navy in the Northwest Coast, and it was a study of uh, imperial interdiction and the establishment of a spy malt as a naval base, and of course, um, keeping the Americans at bay on at, on the south and the Russians at bay on the north in Alaska. But that was a policy study, and it set about the the business of proving that it was maritime. Uh, power rather than the the Hudson Bay Company that uh, was the dominant feature in the, in the security of British Columbia. Uh, now that ran uh, counter to the great ar the arguments of the great John S. Galbraith, who happened who written the Hudson Bay Company as an imperial factor, and he was my external examiner in London. So it was a very interesting discussion. Uh, about the, uh, the the great profiles of British Columbia history, whether it was seaborne or land based, 
And at the end of the day, I was able to prove my case. Uh, that was a, a, a study that was done without the discussion of the personalities and characters of the main actors. Since that time, and as one reviewer pointed out, a senior historian from Halifax pointed out, Barry needs to know about developing character and personality. It hadn't been my duty to set out character and personality in that first book. But when the second edition of that book came out called Britannia's Navy, I ran with this argument, which was by Peter Waite of Halifax, incidentally, I, and I described the great personalities that were involved in the story. Uh, George Henry Richards, whom I've already mentioned, the famous um, hydrographer, is one of them. And then Robert Lambert Baines, who arrives in British Columbia at the time of the Fraser Gold Rush and the San Juan Island boundary question. And he, he says, hey, we've, we've got the seat of empire here for the, for the British, and we're, we're in great... Uh, peril of losing it to the American uh, and California uh, uh, gold seekers. Uh, this is empire in peril. So he says, well, we've got to establish a naval base here and get going with the project. So, I mean, this I knew about from my first study, but in the second uh, edition, Britannia's Navy uh, on the West Coast, um, I, I really played up the personalities. And, and that, again, uh, brought added interest in, to, to my, my general story. Run forward on, on, on the account, and we're coming to Juan de Fuca Strait. Uh, and here was a, a, a Cephalonian pilot in the service of Spain who has a bar interview in Venice in 1592 with an, uh, an English uh, commercial uh, an, an enthusiast by the name of Michael Locke. And Michael Locke takes down his uh, recounting uh, of uh, a voyage through a waterway at 47 and 48 degrees north latitude and the coming into a great inland sea. Uh, so this was published in 1625, don't you know? And it became the essence of a, of a story as to whether or not Juan de Fuca actually sailed these waters. He was, he was a Cephalonian, but he adopted the, uh, he was given this name Juan de Fuca. Uh, as a Spanish navigator. Uh, anyway, uh, this becomes one of the great mysteries. And in, in the, in the, in the uh, appendix of that uh, book I wrote called Fortunes a River, which is about the Columbia River, uh, I uh, detailed all the different theories of, of uh, the coast and the, and the waterways, the Strait of Aini and the, the Juan de Fuca's uh, passage and, and, and others, Maldonado's passage and, and others that were trotted out by the armchair visionaries who were interested in the, the famed Northwest Passage. But but in any event, there was a chance to really play up the, the story of a personality. And then to conclude the book, I got to the heart of the Spanish-British uh, rivalry for Nootka Sound and to play off Bodega y Cuadra, who was the famous Spanish uh, explorer, backed by Alcala Galeano and Dionisio Valdez, who were the explorers who came through here in 1792 in their little uh, Descubrieta, and then against George Vancouver, the stalwart British explorer who won't accede to any Spanish pretensions. And there, in that book, I really had the Spanish personalities against the, the British personalities, and previous to that is Martinez, 
and um, uh, Colnet in their, their 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 rivalry in Nootka Sound and the seizure of Colnet ships, and and there we got the chance to tell, bring these personalities to life, Barry, please, please, <laughs> you know they're dying, they're dying to be, be, we're dying to get personalities and characters from our past retold. Yes, they're imperial figures, but. They're 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 still part of our history. Uh, James Douglas uh, needs to be writ- rewritten. We need a new biography of him. I have completed the draft manuscript of a biography of his famous nemesis, Richard Blanchard, who was the first governor of Vancouver Island, and I hope that that's going to be uh, uh, told because they're uh, published because there's so many interesting tales about him and of course about james douglas for that particular period of time so yeah personality and character is really important i think that's one of the things i've learned uh the other thing i've learned is to uh to 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 not to not give away my story before i should in other words not to preempt my own narrative do you follow me I, on this? I think, you know, be careful that you don't give away the secrets in advance. Um, this is good film production, too. Um, we, we, we need to see what's going to happen in the next minute to know where we've been. And in writing, if we give away the story at the beginning, as in Wanda Fuqua Strait, we don't know how the story works itself out. So you've got to be careful as a writer that you don't give away your secrets. I mean, you can you can describe them in a ghostly fashion at the beginning and say, well, we're going to take you into these locations and then these bywaters of history, but you're going to have to wait. <laughs> you're going to have to wait to get through uh, the, the, the story. But going back to, to Mirrors Island, you know, um, there's there's a pathos to this story there i don't know whether i have given it the tragedy it deserves if i were to write uh, another article of reflecting in my own book i i would i would be more sympathetic to the idea that i've disclosed the story which at the end of the day is a victory for the nationalist tribal councilmen or people and i'm so pleased that 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 special case led to other particular or dis- define cases for those people. And there are 14, 13 or 14 band councils who are part of this process. But on the other hand, looking back on it, there's a pathos at a world we've lost, at a world the indigenous people have lost. They haven't lost their languages and they haven't lost their places of occupation, but they've lost their economies. That That's that's the great thing. When possessing Mears Island starts, you see a vibrant culture engaging in commerce and that has been stripped away from them so there's that pathos but there's the other pathos of the of the forest and the desolation of the forest so i look on the book as uh as bittersweet in a way it it, it I, i'm so pleased that it has been widely read read and won so many prizes and honors but on the other hand i'm thinking back on it and saying oh well, this is a sad story on reflection to having to had to tell that story but I'm grateful I did that story, and I'm grateful for my publishers, my publisher, Harbor Publishing, and and my editor, Audrey McClellan, have been, uh, and others have been so wonderful in advancing this book, and I want to pay honor to them. Thank you. That was Barry Goff. 
His book, Possessing Mears Island, A Historian's Journey into the Past of Clackwit Sound, was a finalist for the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. If you'd like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, I talk to Ian Williams, author of Disorientation, Being Black in the World, which was a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.